Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for watching ADH TV. As you most probably know, I'm Alan Jones and I'm with you for a rollicking hour. Plenty to share with you tonight. If we could have an inquiry into former Prime Minister Morrison, how much more important is a Royal Commission into the damaging coronavirus response by governments and bureaucrats? Unanswered questions must be answered. I have something to say about that. The Jobs and Skills Summit will be next week. It reads more like a fairy story than a political reality. The focus is bound to be on migration. But is that the answer? Professor Judith Sloan believes it's not. I'll talk to her. But as the problems mount for the Albanese government, how are they going to respond to the stage three tax cuts, which they supported when they were in opposition? Debt coming out of our ears, yet we're talking about $183 billion in stage three tax cuts in the first seven years from 2024, but almost $140 billion will be directed to Australians on $120,000 or more. I'll explain how that works, but should it work? I'm going to talk to Mark Latham tonight. We'll get on to the continuing crisis in education, but as the man in the New South Wales Parliament who's head and shoulders intellectually above the rest, I want to ask him what on earth has happened to Dominic Perrottet? The man who argued at the outset against the wets, and now he seems to have joined them. And the issue that I mentioned yesterday with Governor DeSantis from Florida, the indoctrination of our children over gender dysphoria. Parents, this is a massive issue. I'll explain to you what is happening and what it means. And then petrol prices. The 44 cents a litre cut on the fuel excise ends on September 28. How does that give you a sinking feeling? But further problems loom in relation to supply if China want to play funny games. I'll explain where I think we are on all of that. So it's a packed house tonight. I hope you'll enjoy it. You are watching ADH TV and I'm Alan Jones. Yesterday, I raised the issue of the resignation in America of this fellow Anthony Fauci, the US government's top infectious disease expert. 
But does he leave his post without serious questions being asked as to why his agency, the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, made a grant of $600,000 to the Wuhan Institute of Virology? Now, the Wuhan Institute, as I told you last night, was involved in what is called gain-of-function research, which alters an organism or disease in a way that makes it more deadly, more transmissible capable of causing more harm in human beings. There's overwhelming evidence that the virus escaped from a laboratory. And in that laboratory, research was being conducted to make viruses more dangerous to human beings. And this research was partly funded by Fauci's National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. Now that Fauci's mates, the Democrats, are running the show, does he leave with no proper investigation of Fauci's involvement with this Wuhan Institute in lockstep with China? Well, let's come to Australia. If we can have an inquiry for nothing more than base political motives into what the former Prime Minister did or didn't do, why can't we have an inquiry with all the powers of a Royal Commission to investigate the massive coronavirus intrusion into our lives as a result of the undebated dictates by unelected health officials and bureaucrats? Remember, parliaments didn't sit. We had daily press conferences impregnated with alarmism and fear, years of lockdowns. In parts of Sydney, people woke up to members of the Defence Force armed with guns. The federal and state governments spent hundreds of billions of dollars of borrowed money on the crisis. Businesses were destroyed. Families were separated. They couldn't even say goodbye to dying members. Children were asked to learn from home, an impossibility for those of lower socioeconomic status. The damage to the mental well-being of many still cannot be calculated. One question needs to be answered above all others. Was this ruthless and brutal exercise of power by governments and bureaucrats necessary? On the latest data, 99.9%, there it is, of all cases in Australia were mild. 99.9%. That's the table from today. That's right up to date. At long last, as others are beginning to say, the scale of the intervention was massive. Michael Koziol correctly argued yesterday when he wrote, businesses forced to shut, visitors banned from private homes, curfews enforced by the police and the army, people locked out of their own state and country. They even closed children's playgrounds and limited how many people you could have at a funeral. As he said, whatever you think about these individual measures, they warrant a retrospective examination, unquote. Well, you bet they do. And as he further says, quote, it would be a fairly intellectually impoverished society that was not interested in how exactly these incursions into everyday life were decided upon and what effect they had on curbing the virus. The lack of curiosity about these matters, he said, is astounding. Well, Chris Ullman writes today, and I quote, even after more than 90% of the population was vaccinated, the message was still one of fear from our health officials and governments who've clung to their emergency powers like a comfort blanket, unquote. Fear. You can still see people driving, can't you, on their own, in their cars, wearing masks. P people still frightened to get into a lift with other people. Should we investigate comments by people like Professor Neil Ferguson from the Imperial College in London, who produced a paper which said that 40 million people worldwide would die? 
But this is the bloke who's modelling fashioned government policy around the world. Only Donald Trump argued that 99% of all cases were mild and that 99.75% would recover. He said that in 2020. He was vilified. He was correct. Should we hear from Professor Mark Woolhouse, the Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the University of Edinburgh, but an advisor to the British government, Boris Johnson? not alone amongst a stack of world authorities who were ignored. But he said in 2020, quote, lockdown was a panic measure. And I believe history will say trying to control COVID-19 through lockdown was a monumental mistake on a global scale. The cure, he said, was worse than the disease. He said, I never want to see a national lockdown again, unquote. We knew from the outset that people with comorbidities were at risk, but the whole nation was treated as if it were at risk. The Epidemiology Report 22 from the federal government's own Department of Health, but you weren't allowed to say these things, and I got into trouble for saying them, but bugger it, I said it anyway, for the period ending August 2, 2020, said, quote, comorbidities were common in those COVID-19 cases admitted to Australian hospitals, with 78% recording at least one of the specified comorbidities. Only 9% recorded no comorbidities. In other words, people were at risk independently of your age if you had comorbidities. I mean, I'm one of those people. I've had cancer and all the rest of it. Then I'm in strife. We knew that. We were told that. But only 9% recorded no comorbidities. It further said, the symptoms reported by COVID-19 cases in Australia are consistent with a mild respiratory infection. This is our own Department of Health a mild respiratory infection in the majority of cases. So what do we have? An economy smashed, businesses shut, very little scientific evidence to justify that kind of response. Almost 90% of all coronavirus deaths in Australia were in Victoria, the result of the criminal negligence of the quarantine debacle. But the state was shut down. 5.5 million Melbournians were living like battery hens. In relation to lockdowns, the distinguished Professor Michael Levitt, a biophysicist and professor of structural biology at Stanford University, no less, they know a bit more than some of these drones that were telling us what we could and couldn't do, he argued, the level of stupidity going on here is amazing. Lockdowns are a huge mistake. No one listened to him, said Dr. Joel Kettner, the professor of community health sciences and surgery at Manitoba University in Canada, quote, I've seen pandemics, one every year. It's called influenza and other respiratory illness viruses. I've never seen the reaction and I'm trying to understand why. So we can jump up and down about Scott Morrison and an inquiry. But as Chris Ullman splendidly wrote today, quote, premiers, chief ministers, the squadron of health bureaucrats and the legion of assorted experts should line up to be part of an all-in royal commission into the pandemic response. This generation, he wrote, and everyone that follows is owed a forensic examination of what worked, what failed, and how power was exercised." Unquote. Prime Minister Albanese, this is more important and more urgent than your party political campaign against the former Prime Minister. Will we get a Royal Commission into all aspects of the coronavirus response? We shouldn't hold our breath waiting. 
Well, the Albanese government's Jobs and Skills Summit will be held next week, Thursday and Friday, September 1 and 2, at Parliament House in Canberra. It has a bit of a Hans Christian Andersen look about it, because the issue's paper says the summit will cover five broad themes, maintaining full employment and growing productivity, boosting job security and wages, lifting participation and reducing barriers to employment, delivering a high quality labour force through skills, training and migration, and maximising opportunities in the industries of the future. Well, so far there's no evidence of growing productivity, and so far the worker will tell you where his wages sit with inflation far outstripping any wage growth, and reducing barriers to employment. I thought government made a fair fist of that themselves during coronavirus, shutting the economy down. Delivering a high quality labour force? Well, if there's a bias in favour of a university education and against trade training, then there will certainly be a shortage of skill. Migration? I'll look at that in a moment. But already we have the Jobs Minister, Brendan O'Connor, saying the country needed to better recognise the existing skills and qualifications of migrants who come to Australia, which could include, quote, bridging training, instead of forcing them to study again for years. Now, only a week ago, the government said it was considering increasing the annual migration cap from its current rate of 160,000, and that will be central, we're told, to the Skills Summit, and apparently will be announced in the October budget. Well, in that excellent anthology of essays edited by the young man who stood in for me on this program last week, Jake Thrupp, there it is on your screen, Professor Judith Sloan, with wide experience in these fields of labour studies, wrote a telling essay, Why Politicians Have It All Wrong. And Professor Judith Sloan joins me. Judith, thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure to have you on the program. But Judith, if we're talking about growing productivity and reducing the barriers to employment, why do you think the nation's peak oil and gas body, the Australian Petroleum Production and Exploration Association, and the owner of our largest coal-fired power plant, Woodside Energy, are not invited? Well, I think that's right, uh, Alan, but also there are some other. I mean, you think you might invite someone, say, from the recruitment industry, because they tend to be close to the ground in terms of what's actually going on, where uh, it's difficult to recruit and the like, but they didn't get a Guernsey either. But look, you know, you and I know, Alan, this is political theatre. Um, when Albanese announced the summit, uh, when he was the leader of the opposition, he was struggling to get attention. And this summit was supposed to be about unemployment and underemployment. And, of course, he got to this point. Uh, it was actually clear at the time, but now you can't have it about unemployment because, you know, unemployment is 3.4%. Um, so I think actually cluttering the agenda, as you uh, read out uh, the, 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 the wide agenda that they're proposing is a way of ensuring that we're all get a bit confused about yeah, it yeah, yeah. and whatever comes out of it, the government wants to come out of it at yeah. this point. Yes, that's right. The, the, the release okay. at the end has most probably already been written. I want to get to onto migration in a moment, but before we do, could I just have a quick comment from you? What political noose do you think Bowen and co are putting around their necks by saying we'll get to 82% renewables by 2030? Well, um, yeah, I write for this RAM, but I also write for The Spectator. So if anyone wants to read that, that's where you see bad Judith. 
in uh, in my <laughs> in my best uh, rhetorical flourishes. Uh, but uh, I made the point a little a few weeks ago that the two most dangerous people in the Albanese government are Bowen and Burke, the two Bs. Um, so watch that space. And uh, I think Bowen, I mean, partly because he doesn't realise that he's being uh, um, sold a whole lot of rubbish, uh, is going along with it. Um, and Burke, of course, they have to pay off the union masters, so he's going along with that. Okay. Those are both, I think they are both dangerous politicians for you know, the national interest, Absolutely. you know, leave Absolutely. aside the politics. Good point. In that essay you wrote in Australia Tomorrow, which Jake edited, Big Australia, you said why politicians have it all wrong and governments as now talking about high migrant intakes, businesses can't fill jobs, significant skills shortages and so on, the decline in international student enrolments. Just as simple the question, therefore, Judith, is migration the answer? Well, it's definitely no silver bullet. Uh, and I, I, I try and make this simple point always, that, of course, more migrants means a bigger economy. But a bigger economy doesn't mean higher living standards, higher per capita income. So everyone has to keep thinking per capita, right? So what happens is that, yes, you can bring in more migrants. And there are definitely winners in that. I think, for example, some of the employer groups, they're going to be there at the summit with their ears pinned back saying more migrants, more migrants. The property industry, for example, they like more migrants. But if we look at the economic research, um, it's the per capita impact which is so disappointing. And uh, they won't be talking about that at the summit. Mm. Can I also make the point, which uh, I did cover in that, uh, yes, I agree, splendid volume uh, that Jake, Jake put together and, and and what a great thing he did really because I didn't know him from Adam when he asked me but I still <laughs> said yes. Um, uh, and, you know, all the authors pretty busy people. Um, but survey after survey after survey shows you that the population at large does not want rapidly increasing migrant intakes. They're prepared to accept some migration they are prepared to accept that migration has been an important part of the Australian story, but they do not want mm. rapid mig migrant intakes, right? Well, me, yeah. And it's interesting that there were some figures just released in the nine papers uh, just today which showed exactly the same, Quite. that people don't want more migration. I just want to come back to the point to our viewers here that Judith's made a very valid point. It's this per capita income. Now, if you take the national economy as a cake, a cake, and then you say, right, oh, we're going to have 20 million people eating the cake. Well, you know what slice you'll get. If you then bring in another 5 million and you don't grow the cake, the 25 million are going to have a smaller slice of the cake. That's the point that Judith Sloan is making. Unless you improve productivity and that's grow the economy, you can't accommodate these people. But you also make a very valid point in that essay and you say that this is a numbers game. Businesses don't really care about the skill profile of the newly arrived migrants. What they want are more customers to buy or rent properties, to open bank accounts, to take out loans, to buy goods and services offered by business who'll be really, as you say, into the government down here at this skills summit and they rely on migrant intake to achieve economic growth for them. But it may not be economic growth front. That's your point, isn't it? Well, and that's my point. And the thing is, they will pay lip service to the idea, oh, yes, we're really interested in skill migration. 
but they really are not. And then if you look at the list of um, uh, skilled supposedly skilled occupations uh, that are in short supply, they include things like childcare workers and aged care nurses and the like. Now, um, I'm not saying they're not important jobs, but, I mean, are they seriously skilled jobs? You know, I mean, most a lot of those jobs you can do and Australia can do uh, by taking a six-week TAFE course and then and learning on the job. So I think that is it, it's one of these things, Alan, it's the importance of language. You yeah, know, they yeah. use this language of, yeah. oh, yes, well, we're only interested in skilled migration. Yes. So everyone thinks... Oh, to well, placate people. Yeah. But, I mean, you make this point about mm. population growth. We have the amongst the highest population growth in developed economies. 1.3 to 1.5% a year growth of population. The UK, Judith cites this in this essay, 0.5%, the US 0.7, Canada 0.8, France 0.34, Spain 0.65, we're talking about 1.5%, Denmark 0.44%, all through immigration. So why is none of this ever debated? I mean, our current population is 25.7 million, but according to the latest interge intergenerational report, in 40 years' time, it'll be up to 40 million. I mean, how the hell do we manage all of this when you talk about schools and infrastructure and roads and, of course, social cohesion? Mm. But, you know, here's the point. You also will see on page one, two or three of newspapers story after story of what is essentially a crisis in rental accommodation, right? That's it. People cannot get That's affordable, it. adequate rental yep. accommodation. Um, rents are going up dramatically. There's a huge shortage of rental accommodation. And it's not just in the big cities, it's in other, in other places too. So for the life of me, I don't understand. So, you know, some of the business groups are saying, no, we don't like 160,000, you know, 200,000 sounds better. How are those people going to be accommodated in the context yep. of what really is a crisis of rental accommodation? Absolutely. So, you know, it's, it's a very multifactorial story. And yes. I think that, you know, it's, it's oversimplified. And I think the government, I mean, I'm very surprised that the government is pushing this because in many ways we have a good opportunity to basically force employers to train the locals, you know. We're letting employers off, 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 the, off, the, um, off the leash by allowing them to bring in the migrants and, um, and instead, of in, instead of training locals. And see, I think and, that's a great picture. See, in coronavirus, we were told that the experts had things to say. Now, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not piddling in your pocket. I mean, you're widely experienced academically and in terms of your research and you've written papers and all the rest of it. Does anyone in government read what you have written or indeed ask your views on this? Well, I think it's, I mean, I think that's a really interesting question, Alan, because I think um, not so much this government, but the previous government, I, I was in touch with a lot of the, the decision makers and I think they're kind of accepted in theory. But, you know, don't forget that the what I call the big Australian lobby, they're a strong group. Powerful. They're a powerful group. Mm, that's right. I uh, mean, And I think, you know, they tend yeah. just, to... Just repeating, I, I mean... I think they the, get the ears of all sides of politics. That's right, they're down there. The but the, the flip side will never be mentioned. So, in other words, bring them all in, another 200,000. So they're competing for the same limited housing stock. House prices go up. 
They're competing for the same limited rental stock as you just said. Rent prices go up. Then there's the urban congestion. Have a look at the roads as it is. Then there's the pressure on infrastructure like schools and health services and the social cohesion that I mentioned. Uh, I mean, how on earth are those things going to be addressed and overcome by just saying it's migration, migration, migration? I mean, that's why I was quite surprised that the Treasurer of New South Wales, Matt Keane, of whom I'm not a great fan, of course, no. um, was pushing this. Yep. And, I mean, he was actually, I mean, I guess in a way he was honest. He said, oh, yes, I want more skilled migrants for New South Wales, but he wants an unskilled visa category mm. too. I'm thinking, <laughs> wow. Um, but, you know, he actually, not that he, he kind of seems to realise it, is sitting at the desk of an organisation because the funny thing is that the states are the ones who in many ways bear the costs of high rates of migration, much more so than the federal Correct. government, right? Correct. The federal government gets the additional tax revenue and the like, yes. but the costs are often, and they're actually even borne by local government, right? Yes. And there's Matt Keane telling us we have to increase both skilled and unskilled. Yeah, well, I mean, you um, make you make that migration. point. In, you make that point in the essay that only 27% of the intake pre-COVID of 160,000 migrants were primary skilled migrants. Only 27%. We could talk all night, Judith. It's wonderful. The clarity of your thinking. Your wonderful writing. Let's talk more often. And this whole question of immigration has got to be debated. You can't get a debate in this country about any of this stuff, can you now? Well, that was really one of the points, and I think why I agreed to your young Jake, because I really think it is something that people want to to debate. Yes. Um, I think people want um, a measured um, and balanced migration program, which can kind of be accommodated without people kind of noticing the pressures. Absolutely. And, well, uh, that, that would be my end point. I, I've got to tell you that Jake's got just gone out to get a bit of needle and thread because the buttons have just bounced off his shirt. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> we'll talk to you again, and I no hope worries. it's soon, Judith. Isn't she wonderful? She's wonderful, and she knows her stuff, <laughs> Professor Judith Sloan. <laughs> it is no wonder the government wants the so-called Morrison affair to go on forever, but I wouldn't mind being a fly on the wall when Treasurer Chalmers meets Prime Minister Albanese sitting in on the government's expenditure review committee. The issue? Stage three tax cuts. On the one hand, the Reserve Bank jacking up interest rates is taking money out of the hands of the battler. The Reserve Bank governor, who, as you know, I believe, shouldn't have his job on over a million dollars a year, completely messed up the interest rate challenge last year and encouraged borrowers to believe that cheap money was here for some years to come. Now he's telling us that interest rates will have to continue to climb to, quote, slow the economy and get things back on an even keel, unquote. So what happens to stage three income tax cuts? Well, as I said yesterday, when I spoke to Tim Buckley, we're facing a mountain of debt. How do you retire the debt? Certainly not by continuing to spend. But the stage three of these income tax cuts come into being in 2024. It could well be argued that the economy above end may need some injection to prop up demand, especially when households in 2024 will be into their third year of higher interest rates and real wage cuts. But here's Labor's problem. The stage three tax cuts were then opposed at the time by Labor, at first, at a time when Labor was trying hard to keep all sections of the voter community happy. 2018, it happens with oppositions. But let me tell you what these cuts, tax cuts mean. 
In its first year, 2024, these cuts are estimated to cost $15.7 in one year, almost as much as will be spent on the Pharmaceutical Benefits Scheme and more than will be spent on higher education. What I find absurd is that this was legislated in 2018 to take effect six years down the track. The Parliamentary Budget Office believes that the Stage 3 tax cut cost will be $183.4 billion in its first seven years, but almost $140 billion of that will be directed to Australians on $120,000 or more. You see, what Morrison and Frydenberg did was to cut the tax rate applying to incomes over $45,000 from 32.5 cents in the dollar to 30 cents. But that low rate extends all the way up to $200,000. So the entire rung, an entire rung on the tax ladder was abolished. So for those very high income earners, the part of their income that was taxed at 37 cents will now be taxed at 30 cents. And the next part that was taxed at 45 cents will also be taxed at 30 cents. So a politician on a base salary of $217,000 will get a tax cut of about $10,000. A registered nurse on about $72,000 will get a tax cut of about $681. This is a politically lethal problem for Prime Minister Albanese to defend. Labor waived these tax cuts through the parliament even though they were unaffordable, regressive and biased towards men. I'll come to that in a minute. But Anthony Albanese in opposition didn't want a repeat of the tax scare campaign that was mounted against his predecessor, Bill Shorten, in 2019. But how does Labor defend the fact that someone on $45,000, which is about half the average full-time income of $90,000, will pay the same rate of tax as someone on more than double that figure, someone on $180,000? Is that reform? Someone's going to raise the fact that given the current income statistics of men and women, 78% of the 15.7 billion in 24-25 will go to the top 20% of income earners, 78% of it. And the split of the dollars between male earners and female earners, this will be embarrassing for the government, will be 67% for men because they're on higher wages and 33% for women. Now that was accepted by Albanese in opposition. No homework, or perhaps too frightened to oppose. Is it tax fairness to reward those who don't need a handout and punish those who carried the burden of looking after the country during coronavirus? Nurses, policemen, frontline security. Good luck Jim Chalmers, trying to defend all of this, let alone explain it. But then how can the opposition attack the government, it is their legislation. But if the new government is worried about debt and fairness and what the nation can afford, almost 200 billion splashed out in 2024 in this way doesn't seem to meet any of the appropriate criteria. These are tax cuts, money that government has taken from us. But we should always give back first to those who need it the most when they need it. And in these stage three tax cuts, that's not happening. Over to you, Jim Chalmers. Well, look, I'll ask you this question. Of how many politicians can it be said 
that when you listen to them, you learn something and you feel that as a community, we're better off for them being there. That's true of Mark Latham. He is head and shoulders above any other talent in the New South Wales Parliament and may well be the most outstanding political figure today in this country. He is in the vanguard of what I talked about yesterday and today, re-Governor Ron DeSantis in Florida, taking indoctrination and ideology out of education and getting on with the job of proper teaching. I'll come to that in a moment but with Mark, but firstly, one or two questions without notice, although actually all my questions to Mark Latham were without notice. We never have a discussion about what we're going to talk about. He can handle anything you throw at him. Of course, Mark is the leader of the One Nation Party in New South Wales. Mark, glad to have you again. But before we get to this crisis in education, what has happened to Dominic Perrottet? Wherever you turn, he's got no hesitation in throwing his own people under a bus I praised him to the rooftops when he got the gig because he seemed a genuine liberal. He spoke genuine liberal language. He seemed unafraid to speak his mind. Now he's throwing away government, becoming one of the wets that voters have rejected right across the country. What's happened? Well, he's got two problems. One is he got the leadership and became uh, Premier of New South Wales using the Liberal Party numbers supplied by Matt Keane, who's not really a liberal. He's not certainly not a conservative. He's on the green left of politics and Keane has followers in there. They walk around that parliament house like zombies, Alan, following Keane. Uh, they haven't got a brain cell between them, but uh, they've got all those woke green left liberals uh, in the New South Wales parliament. Keane's got the numbers and Perrottet is uh, dancing to that particular tune, uh, which is a great shame, really. He's a much uh, more capable person than being a, a Matt Keane um, functionary. And uh, his second problem is that uh, ever since he got the job, so what's that, about 10 months now, he's just done crisis management. Uh, it was COVID and then uh, floods and now this Barillaro business. You've got to strike out a direction. New South Wales has big challenges, big problems in its schools, uh, in its health system, in its transport system, uh, in the way the public service functions, in customer service. You know, these are huge challenges. And Perrottet needs to set out to the people of the state what is his agenda for solving these enormous problems and giving them some value in the next term of Absolutely. parliament if see, they were to be re-elected? See, he used to mock the idea of having the Indigenous flag enjoying equivalence with the Australian flag and the New South Wales flag. Now he says it'll be a permanent feature at a cost of $25 million. I mean, can he go down to Bunnings and find out how much a flagpole and a flag might cost and how much a good tradesman will charge to climb the bridge and stick it up there, not $25 million. Now, admittedly, he's acknowledged that now, but how did he allow the politically damaging figure of $25 million to see the light of day? Well, this is the uh, the curse of virtue signalling. If all you've got to answer the serious problems of Indigenous people in New South Wales is a flag on a bridge, well, you become a laughing stock. Alan, I used the winter recess of the Parliament um, three weeks ago to get out to Walgett, Moree, Burke, Bawarana, and the problems you find in Indigenous communities, kids not going to school, uh, kids being sexually assaulted, um, welfare dependency, uh, capable, young, strapping Indigenous guys who won't put their name down for a job. In Burke, they've just opened a, a new abattoir, 75 jobs, and they can only fill 15. None of the Indigenous will put their name down for the remaining 60, and those 60 are most likely to be imported workers from East Timor. So we, we've got huge problems there in Indigenous community. Housing standards are, are lousy, and if, if you're all you're engaged in is a, a meaningless flag on a bridge, 
Well, you're not really um, a serious politician no, with serious public policy. Not at all. I mean, then you've got the state's renewable energy target. He said 50% by 2030, he says, will help future-proof New South Wales power supply. I mean, has Dominic Perrottet gone nuts? I mean, he talked about a lost decade, meaning that there's been a lack of private sector investment in renewables. But since 2012, more than 90% of investment in electricity generation in the eastern states has been in wind and solar. In per capita terms, we've got the highest rate of renewable grid scale generation in the world. Not that it'll be able to keep the lights on and business going. But I mean, where does he get this stuff from? Keen. Well, he gets it from Matt Green. And, and, and this is the problem. Green promised uh, a reduction in electricity prices of $130 for households, $430 for businesses. How's that going? I mean, the prices have gone exactly the opposite direction. And documents obtained um, under my motion in the upper house show that New South Wales is slated to have uh, blackouts in 2025 and 26 after the closure of Araring and Liddell power stations. So uh, there's no answer um, through renewables. No. Uh, you need reliable baseload power. Yeah. You can do that essentially through gas, coal or nuclear. You can't do it through renewables, 100%. wind and solar 100%. power. But so then... if Perrottet doesn't understand that, He's sending New South Wales down the pathway of higher electricity prices and the disaster of blackouts. 100% correct, Mark. You, we've talked about it before here, but, I mean, Piritage then chose Matt Keane as his deputy, who is the Energy Minister and the Treasurer of New South Wales. And then it's worth repeating, you and I discussed it on this program, New South Wales takes out the wooden spoon, the worst fiscal performer in Australia. Now, Queensland and Victoria are profligate and irresponsible, but New South Wales would make you weep. 2021 net government debt, that's last year, net government debt, 37 billion. This financial year, 78 billion, an increase of 110% in two years. But Dominic Perrottet boasts about this wonderful budget, Mark. No, 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 no. This is the problem that Morrison and Frydenberg had. People don't recognise today's Liberal Party because they've given up on fiscal discipline. It's yep. just an absolute spendathon and racking up debt for future generations to pay. That, that shouldn't be the Liberal Party way. Uh, but again, with Keane as Treasurer, uh, they're headed, Alan, uh, those debt figures are much worse. They're headed to a gross debt in New South Wales of $182 billion. And the interest on that to service uh, the debt with interest payments, we'll be spending more on interest payments in New South Wales than we spend on the police force statewide and also running TAFE. So these are huge numbers of debt and interest payments that... Um, indicate that um, uh, the, the government's lost all fiscal discipline. They've had about 330 policy changes in their last two budgets. Only three of them were cost savings. Everything else is just spend, 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 debt, debt, debt. And the deficits, of course, are enormous. Extraordinary. There we are. That's the profile of New South Wales completely outspending the Labor states. Education, Mark, are we making any progress on what is taught in the classroom. Now, we've heard all sorts of plans about paying teachers more, rewarding the so-called good teachers, though how you determine a good teacher, I'm not sure, hiring people to do non-teaching tasks, such as playground supervision. But who is addressing the issue of what the kids are being taught? Well, I'm trying to. Uh, just yesterday at our budget estimates, I raised the shocking oversight um, I, I received from um, information sources, uh, uh, an email sent by the Education Department, there was someone complaining about political content in the classroom and the response from the department was, we don't have a policy 
for the use of political propaganda in classrooms. Now, what does that mean? You can run uh, party political material in classrooms at election time. You can run Nazi material. You can run Black Lives Matter. You can put up posters that they did at one school, uh, uh, vilifying the New South Wales police, saying pigs out of the country. Uh, well, what's going on here, Alan? Sarah Mitchell, the minister, at the end of 2019, said something I thought was a breakthrough. She said she wanted politics out of the classrooms of New South Wales. But we find out three years later they haven't got a policy of uh, eliminating political propaganda. There's no restriction on what the teachers can do in terms of the politics in the classroom. So it becomes political indoctrination instead of education. Absolutely. I mean, I, I mentioned yesterday the Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his recent address to a school in one of his counties, and he said what you and I have been saying for years, and I quote him, our mantra has been in our schools to educate kids, not indoctrinate kids, hopefully. What we are doing is saying that teaching is not about learning education in college or university. It's about having proficiency in subjects, then learning on the ground how to teach them, unquote. Now, Mark, for all the money in the world, 140 billion we spend in this country on education. We don't teach proficiency in English, maths and science. I mean, kids can't recite a verse of poetry. They don't know their own language. They don't know their geography or their history. And now they're told to learn from their laptop. I mean, the face-to-face, -face, rigorous, personal instruction that you've advocated, where knowledge is hammered into people. That's all over, apparently, is it? Well, um, unfortunately, they're not uh, being taught pride in Australia either. Uh, just last week, uh, I raised an example of a, a school in the central west of New South Wales where for year one students, so these are six-year-old ones, they were being taught that Australian history was genocide, that we're a genocidal nation. And, and this is a colouring in exercise mm. for a NADOC poster. Yes, yes. And this denigration of Australia, they're saying that we're still ch stealing Indigenous children, which is not true that we're still stealing Indigenous wages, yes. which is not true. This is political propaganda And we're living in... We've stolen this country. Sick. We've stolen this country. Well, it's, these it's kids genuinely believe that. Well, it's a sickness when uh, grown adults' teachers are trying to push their political views upon six-year-olds who wouldn't understand what genocide is. We're trying to teach these kids how to read and write and do numbers, not adult concepts like uh, uh, genocide and going into the detail of Australian history uh, in, in a year one class, but, you know, we need someone like Ron DeSantis. Uh, yeah. uh, what a what an inspiration. He, he said something, I wish it was true in New South Wales, Alan. He said he wants Florida to be a place where woke goes to die. That's it. How we, good is that? Could we yeah. get a leader here yeah. to say that New South Wales is a that. place where woke I, goes I, to die? I, I used that you last know, night. We, yeah, I, I used that night where woke goes to die. Just before you go, though, the, the trouble is that government and education ministers are in a complete state of denial. They want to tell you everything is terrific when international metrics prove we are miles behind comparable overseas countries wasting taxpayers' money. So I'll ask you one final question here, which bothers me. Do parents care? This is all going on, yeah, on yeah, yeah. under their eyes. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, a lot of parents care. I get a steady flow through my office of parents saying, I don't want political propaganda. In, in the school. Uh, these are conservative people of religious faith, people of common sense yeah. who want education. They want literacy, numeracy. Yeah. They want the basic skills of education. They don't want political indoctrination. And and they know, Alan, their children are paying a price. Uh, we all complain about China, but what about our self-inflicted wounds that the international testing shows that 15-year-old students in New South Wales are four years behind China in maths, three and a half years behind in science. We are throwing away 
Australia's advantages in being a, a skilled, relatively intelligent nation through the failings of our education system. And we're going to pay this price for decades to come. Brilliant. You're absolutely brilliant. You're the hope of the side. Keep at it, my friend. We'll keep giving you a forum and we will get there. We have to. This battle for the intellectual... Well, Alan, Alan, one, one good thing about your show, this is a place where woke comes to die. We've found one spot. That's your show. So <laughs> That's good right. on you. Thank you. And I've got to commend you because our viewers are saying, have a look at him. Doesn't he look good? And yes, he does. He's taken some advice about his health and well-being, and he's lost some weight and he looks sensational. So there you are, Mark. We'll talk to you next week. Thanks, Alan. There is Mark Latham. This battle, as I was saying then, for the intellectual well-being of our children has to be won. Mark Latham is the very man to take up the fight. Look, as I just mentioned to Mark, uh, Mark Latham, you'll recall that yesterday I referred to the outstanding 43-year-old governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, who visited a school last week in Pasco County, Florida. And amongst other things, he talked about the things that Mark and I have talked about, keeping indoctrination and ideology out of the state's schools. But he put the medical board in its place concerning their efforts to include in the curriculum gender dysphoria care for minors shoving that stuff in the curriculum. Now, as I said, we're talking about little school-aged children, allegedly uneasy and distressed about their gender, driven, no doubt, by relentless campaigns on social media. Governor DeSantis didn't beat around the bush. Children are being fed this stuff on social media platforms and in schools about gender dysphoria. Dysphoria, it's a silly word, it's a psychological expression for a state of unease or a general dissatisfaction, anxiety, I think. So biology being stood on its head and children being told, if not taught, that they're not defined by biology. You can be a boy if you want to be a boy or a girl if you want to be a boy, a girl if you want to be a girl. And they're anxious about it. And kids' heads are being filled with this stuff. As Governor DeSantis said, a 14-year-old can't get a tattoo, but they're talking that they'll do mastectomies and things which are very problematic and irreversible, said the Governor these are kids going through a growing time in their life. There are a lot of different factors, he said. Most of the dysphoria, anxiety, resolves itself by the time they become adults. So why would you disfigure a minor? Unquote. Well, this brings us to the extraordinary story of Ollie Davies. I mention his name because he has gone public and is doing an immense service to parents in the way in which they handle their children on this issue. Ollie made the decision at 26 to come out as a trans woman. He was suffering depression, anxiety and behavioural problems, as well as a crisis of self-identity. He admits he was lonely and self-hating and had no self-esteem. But he says that as a result of suggestions from others that he was trans, he began to believe it was true. Others started, started suggesting that he questioned his gender. And so he announced his decision to transition. In this modern world, he said the affirmation was immediate and intoxicating. And I quote Ollie, everyone I knew put trans people on a pedestal. It was fashionable. I knew it would be celebrated and promoted. At first, it was euphoric. I felt like coming out as trans was my coming home and the key to everything that was wrong in my life, unquote. But despite signing up enthusiastically for hormone therapy being a woman, he said, quote, being a woman never felt right. I came to realise it was a waste of time and a delusion. Well, a couple of years ago, while still living as a woman, 
Ollie Davies met a young lady and fell in love at first sight. She admits, quote, we were both fairly deep into the woke trans ideology, unquote. Ollie Davies, we're told, has now completed his transition back to being a man and he and his partner Genevieve want to have a baby. But Ollie is now infertile from the effects of estrogen in his body. They're both devastated. The point is this, Ollie Davies now wants to publicly challenge what he describes as an activist-driven approach to diagnosing and treating gender anxiety, dysphoria. The number of children presenting at gender clinics has exploded in recent years. It's not clear whether their parents, parents know about this. Legal actions are live in the UK from those who allege they've been harmed by affirmative care. In other words, go ahead with it. Ollie Davies says, quote, the gender affirming approach in medicine, I think, he said, is a complete mistake. I've seen an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence, he said, including in my own life, that there are inadequate safeguards. I think that what has happened to me is just the thin edge of a massive iceberg, unquote. Ollie Davies says, quote, in my experience, people are inadequately educated about the risks when they initiate the process of transitioning or even not told about those risks at all. He said, it seems to me to just say we must affirm is utterly failing those people and actually causing harm, unquote. So what is at issue here? A very simple issue, which admits no doubt of complicated responses. How do you care for young people raising gender concerns? It is time for some serious debate. Professor Ian Hickey from the University of Sydney's Brain and Mind Centre rightly says, and I quote, this is really important and incredibly significant health issue for individuals and the ramifications are profound, unquote. Now, on the other hand, trans health bodies point to research that shows gender transition regret is extremely rare and that people who detransition usually do so owing to discrimination. But Ollie Davies says, and I quote, I think that in Australia, there are hundreds of people like me who now regret it. And I think that will soon there will be thousands. Ollie Davies believes that if doctors probed the motivations of many young people who present with gender confusion, they would discover external factors and sometimes heavily at play. His warnings can't be ignored when he says, quote, I think there's a massive population of people who actually don't have gender dysphoria, who are now either being pushed toward it or themselves being drawn towards this gender affirmative care pathway, unquote. Disturbingly, he says, it has infiltrated the culture. It comes from doctors, comes from the school curriculum, comes from the media, it comes from social media, it comes from the peak LGBTQIA plus organisations and the marketing that they put out. It's everywhere telling you if you don't feel like you fit the stereotype, you might be trans. For me, he said, it felt like I'd pretty much been involved in a cult, unquote. Ollie Davis has performed a significant public service in alerting parents and teenagers. Is it a message though, that society is prepared to heed? All right, well, before we go, I just want to touch on this issue of petrol prices and the immense pressure families are feeling at the Bowser. Now, although petrol prices have eased a bit over the past few weeks, it appears 
substantial price hikes are on the horizon. On the 28th of September, the Morrison government's fuel excise cut will expire, and this will add 44 cents a litre to the price you pay at the Bowser. And the Albanese government says it has no intention of pushing back the expiry of the excise cut. But the situation could get a lot worse. With the Chinese Communist Party building military bases on coral reefs in the South China Sea, national security experts have warned about what may happen to Australia if China starts playing games. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it has to be said often. The facts have been laid bare in a new study written by several RMIT professors who received funding from our Department of Defence. And they wrote, and I quote, China is increasingly capable of disrupting shipping lanes crucial to Australia's exports and imports. Of particular concern is our reliance on liquid fuels imported via South China Sea shipping routes, unquote. They calculate that, quote, a major conflict would threaten routes supplying 90% of refined fuel imports coming from South Korea, Singapore, Japan, Malaysia and Taiwan, Brunei and Vietnam. Now, they are right. Let me just paint the picture for you. <clears throat> At the moment, Australia imports 90% of its refined fuel needs, 90%, but the vast majority of it comes from four countries, South Korea, Singapore, Japan and Taiwan. If China threatened safe passage through the South China Sea, the shipping routes of all our trading partners would be compromised. Even worse, all the crude oil imported by South Korea, Singapore, Japan and Taiwan for refining into petrol passes through the tiny 2.5 kilometre wide Malacca Strait that separates Malaysia from Indonesia. In other words, most of the fuel that you put in your car passes first through a 2.5 kilometre wide choke point that could be blocked off in a heartbeat. Your fuel, though, then has to go through the South China Sea where Xi Jinping has six brand new military bases in the middle of the ocean. As a result, there's no doubt Australia would face a critical shortage of fuel overnight if China were to play funny games in the South China Sea. And according to the RMIT study, we'd have no fuel left at all after two months. Now, what's the most unnerving part about all of this? Well, think about it. Australia have only 58 days of emergency fuel in storage, less than two-thirds of the 90 days required by international standards. According to retired Air Vice Marshal John Blackburn, quote, we used to have 100 Australian flagships. We now have 13 flagships, and that number is diminishing. We now depend, he said, on foreign-owned ships to bring oil and fuel to Australia, unquote. Now, in recent years, Australia has closed so many oil refineries, we've got only two left. And I'm sorry, but nine years of coalition government. On so many fronts, as I say many times, the problems we face are created by government. This just happens to be a very serious problem. Perhaps to end on a lighter note, at least the Greens leader, Adam Bant, and his woke electric vehicle driving mates in corporate Australia would finally stop whinging about the emissions coming from our cars. <laughs> I don't think so. That's it from me tonight. Fred Paul coming up. Thank you for being with us and watching us, of course, on ADH-TV. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.